So I'll pick up some lines of inquiry. There's a few here on various kinds of um, locked behaviours. Someone is mentioning having a kind of a blind food compulsion. So feeling they've had too much to eat, taking too much food, and feeling unhappy about that regret. And so thinking, well, next time I'll be more scrupulous. And then next time the meal comes along as a blur, and then all the food's gone. Oh, how did that happen? <laughs> I'm struck by the momentum of greed. I'm wondering about heedfulness. And that resolution and bearing with unskillful vipaka. So it seems that the person's... Um, Things run out of uh, supervision, <laughs> go against the person's uh, better wishes, at least the hope they're better wishes. Could be they're hungry. Someone's asking how to find release from a strong fear, Sankara. I guess it's a sense of nervousness and apprehension, anxiety, inferred hostility. And someone's asking about. When a Sankara has been playing out for months or years, it appears constant and unchanging because of its repeating habit. How does one relate to this? How does one see how to see through it? So this is uh, maybe somewhere it's almost like the only question <laughs> of practice. Mm. So, of course, mo- most um, Dharma practice is just really um, set up to create as many leverage points on these compulsive reflexes as, as possible on, on every level. Mm. And so if something has been something that's so ingrained that one barely has any handle on it, it just runs away, or it seems long-term, then it's likely rather like, you know, if one has a, uh, say, a posture problem or something that's nature, your body's unbalanced, then after a while your body starts to grow in that way. You know, like if, if you, your ankles twist, so you've got to almost like relearn how to walk or you've got to relearn, your, your body starts to form in accordance with the dominant trait. And so in such an instance, one won't require things like orthopedic um, footwear or braces or something just to hold the body in a different um, shape. When people have a stammering problem, then there are various things like you put something in your mouth. So your basic manner of speaking is deliberately interrupted by some physical means. So the these are analogies, and so at a certain macro level of, of sankharas, when they become dominant, you have to do pretty macro strategies. That is, um, you know, greed. You just, um, <laughs> you know, like you, you, um, you can't do it through your own willpower. You, you have to set up a situation where you just can't have what you want. Uh, 
so you block it, sort of like quitting smoking, something like that's another habit where it's just difficult because the body gets entrained and ingrained into into that uh, mode of behavior and psychologically it becomes a psychological prop. So when that's not there, we feel disoriented, nervy, unhappy, and so on. So one has to block access. If you fear person, anxiety patterns, then you have to create situations where you're more or less um, other people is a great resource. Mm. Or mantras. So something that, that deliberately jams the signal. Kalyanamita. So people who just don't 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 conform to one's fear or anxiety or things of this nature. So that's your macro level of of sankara management. These are just blocking strategies. Blocking and then counterbalancing. So, you know, the person with the greed fixation probably be advised to to um you know, when they see food have like a, a like a, a mantra recitation, they establish. So you've got to go through this, and it just jams the, the signal. You know, the compulsiveness and the rushing in, you have to put things in the way. And this strategy of putting things in the way is very much in you know, monastic life. Is a, lot of, a lot of that is just constant obstacles. To, to gratification and constant obstacles to having one's own patterns fulfilled. Um, so, you know, a person who, who feels anxious about being with other people finds himself in a group of 20 people all the time until, you know, you, you've got to start to, you know, self-oriented, solitary self-orientation. You've got to work in a community. Uh, you can't just get food when you want it. You can't choose what food you have. Um, so these are things that all break these compulsions. We have training rules about possessions. Um, and then things that particular um, teachers will encourage, Ajahn Chah, uh, they always encourage a lot of bowing. So you come into a room, you, you see a shrine, you bow. So it just stops the, the rushing to the next thing. Before you get up, you bow again. You go out, first thing in the morning you get up, you bow to the shrine. You come back in the evening, you bow. And uh, if you go to see the teacher, you bow. And then you leave, you bow. So, and uh, you do a lot of this. So it just helps the, that running on to the next thing. You, you Stop, stop, stop. And so even trying to get things done, where you, oh, I'm going to do this. You can't do that immediately. You've got to first of all, Bow three times. It's not okay. It just right. And there are, yeah. Also, many many things in monastic life are just obstacle courses to to check the running on around greed, around uh, uh, compulsive behaviours, around. Um, Fear and, and antisocial behaviors. Ajahn Chah would always recommend that people did k- 
carrying water. So this is macro level stuff because it takes two people. You have to get a pole and then you put the bucket down the well and you pull the bucket out and then you put the bucket on the pole and one person has one end of the pole in the shoulder the other person has the other end of the pole. Then you've got to walk. Well, this means you, if you're a tall person and the other person's a short person, or if you've got long legs and the other person's got short legs, you've got to actually sync, synchronize. So you can't do it your way because the other person's not operating. So it's just... And he even said, you know, it's best to do it with someone you've got a problem with. Because then you've got to learn to cooperate with people you don't really like. And so that these are macro uh, strategies. A lot of forest dhamma is about macro strategies. You know, you know put it, putting it out into, into fairly earthy uh, um, practices. Mm. So this level is always something to bear in mind you just know what your habit is and you're trying to create some structure outside of your will that will stop you or push you in a certain direction outside of your control you set something up outside of your control that will push you so you know we have people with sleep problems who would always regret they couldn't get up in the morning. So we established a system whereby, you know, you just go into somebody's room and throw them out of bed on the floor. And they make, a, make an agreement, that's okay. Then the bell goes at four, at ten past four, I'll be coming in your room. If you're not up, I'll throw you on the floor. <laughs> or pour water over your head or something. So eventually you get up. And so these, these are brutal, but, um, you know, if you're serious, you'd, you want to cultivate these macro strategies because, you know, outside, because you see the same colors just nibble away at one's intentions and eventually your, your will can't do it. And that's part of the humbling aspect of practice is how much can you really do from your willpower, particularly when your willpower has been taken over by some of these self-oriented uh, and self-defining qualities. And that's what Sankaras, they become self-defining. And one learns to operate, to cooperate with them, or to not be challenged, to not meet them. We deflect. So they'd have the, you know, the person who was nervous, they'd say, well, you've got to get up and give a dumber talk. And phones is frightened of being with other people, go and get up in the seat and give a talk for half an hour. So things like this. So, you know, just, you've got to look at what it is and then you, you look at macro ways of, of not cooperating with it, challenging it. I, it's great if you can, other people can, can help you know, create something for you, you know, that, you, that you're outside of your, your say. Then in other ways, 
because as we see, the, the mind could just blur with the person with the food problem. You know, it's happened before you even recognized it. It's got so built in, the reflex. So you can't even assess where you really are. You know, what happened? Um, more subtly, uh, one takes it into, uh, into meditative levels. You know, again, you do a similar thing, but this means you've got some enough, some strength to develop, you know, para, parami is, is the word, whereby these are sankharas, these are volitional inclinations that you set up, like patience, truthfulness, goodwill, and you deliberately cultivate them, and you cultivate them a lot, so they become strong enough to act as almost they develop energy and, and you start to form your chitta, yourself, your subjectivity around these. And this again is very common, commonly practiced, uh, standard. Uh, so we might take on resolutions to, um, and these are maybe a uh, Classically, these could be done, you know, you take on a vow with a teacher or a shrine, and you might, so that you might encompass, uh, you know, a devotional practice whereby you, you know, you do a mantra for 100,000 mantras or something, or you you circumambulate a shrine, uh, repeating. So you just build up a certain aditana resolution to... uh, to to give the mind a kind of a body to it, and you've got to do it repeatedly, you know, repeatedly till that quality becomes as strong as the sankara, as the negative sankara. So this is the method of what's called tadanga, which means you counteract. You know, you've got strong this particular habit, you counteract with something else. So that that energy and that that mental proclivity, the connection to that, uh, become an alternative way of wire of re of wiring, and so this is very commonly done, pilgrimages, um, and so forth. And so the the nexus, so the the core of it is its resolution. Do it again and again and again and again and again. And you build it up. Uh, you keep having a, a kind of like a list or two or three things you vow and you do them every day, repeatedly, time and time again. And if you, you don't even, you you don't even. Well, I mean, that is your meditation. Is that that is your kamatana? If it gets strong enough, then we can begin to. We this is the tatanga, which means you 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 stand against it. Otherwise, the, the, if, it's, if it's more subtle, uh, something you can get some leverage over, then you can feel the, the arising of that, what triggers it. And this is more insight, what triggers it. Uh, and feel the energy of it. And um, relate to it, respond to it, with a mind of goodwill or a mind of firmness. Uh, so that the, the Sankara... Is is discharged. 
What would this mean? So if we have a fear model, we feel, what does fear feel like? What does it do? What are the images it creates? What, are the, what happens in the body with that? Then where is, this, where is the experience of non-fear, of refuge, of safety, of shelter, of, of being supported? And look for those signs and internalize those signs, meditate on those signs, those characteristics. Uh, and so you know, we look, look for those signs, make much of them, and establish them in the body and establish them in the, in the, in the mind. Then if we get that feeling of that fear, then you, you meet the fear with a non-fear. You let it discharge. So if I'm f- feeling uh, uh, fear or anxiety, then I might experience that and just keep there's that, and then widening my awareness to feel the space around me, the back, the feet, the out breath. Put the two together, one, the, the uh, Refuge sign then helps the fear sign to discharge its energies release. And these are examples. This is disper- dispersal. Uprooting is an insight practice whereby you you begin to when you've generally means you have cultivated some of these other forms to the point when. This thing is no longer oppressive, it's just annoying, you know, irritating and an and, and encumbrance, but it's no longer got you completely in its grip. You know, what, did, what, is that, what triggers that particular quality? So you say the food thing, it's the perception of that, and then it's immediate, you know, by that time, if, it's, if your practice is strong enough, you can see... The arising of the nimitta of the of the sanya, the perception, delicious, or the perception of will be fulfilled, will be gratified, oral gratification, is a very fundamental reflex that we all experience. That this will somehow fill this emptiness. This will give sweetness and happiness and and comfort and you know. And food doesn't argue, and it, it's you know it just goes right in there, and it's <laughs> and the whole fact I'm feeling quite munchy at the moment. You know when you think of it, just slips down, easy, and all that sign ease, comfort, relaxed, fulfilled. That's what I want, um, and it's completely it's kind of irrational, but we're not rational. So the image of being fulfilled, gratified, you know, what's that going to do with this stuff? This is just, you know, beans and potatoes and um, it's just elements. We're not really interested in food. We look at, we're really interested in the gratification experience. So you might then, oh, there's that and then this food is what? And you look at it and you begin to consider it. What is it? Fibers, carbohydrates, and you you can break it up in your mind into a mash. You can imagine eating, putting it in your mouth and spitting it out. Would well, it look so attractive then? 
You can imagine what it looks like when it gets into your guts, kind of just a pulp, a sloppy glue. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't take much to make food look unattractive. It's only made attractive. You know, you have to do something to it to make it really look attractive. Uh, so you then so you start to analyze. This is the mo- method of analysis, and then you think, well, actually, the thing is not probably not the food. It's this instinct, this reflex instinct. That's that's the thing. Now, what is the, what do I really what really fills and satisfies me? I, you know, and uh, maybe this has to be looked into. What is the lack of fulfilment? What is the the trigger for that? And so this 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 gets quite deep is to the structure of our apparent self as a as a creature of need uh, a creature of essentially needing to be filled by something obviously physical food psychological food these are things that are powerful for us not that many people really get you know beyond this we or ameliorate it, or we begin to see through it. But uh, the the Buddha said, you know, the, the foods are of many kinds, and only one is material food. Mm. That is one which wants to, because I am not. And we're really looking at only when that experience happens. Unfortunately, you know. Uh, the self is only half of the chitta. <laughs> That's why it's inadequate, because it's not the complete story. It's just the particular program zone <laughs> of the chitta. That's why it's always unfulfilled, because it's not, it's not fulfilled. <laughs> if it's fulfilled, it's no longer a self. It's, it's something else. It's a quality of radiance. So we have to reckon, you know, what piece of my jitter am I, is, is being occupied, what piece of my, of my psychology is being most frequently occupied. And, oh, you know, and then you cultivate something a little grander, the generous, the giving, the openness, the vastness of which jitter is capable and then it's not so hungry anymore. It's filled with itself. It's satisfied with itself. Uh, and it's not so hungry because it's receiving true food. Well, these so, you know, so there is a whole mix of things to, to cultivate. You know, we say the first level, we might say, is, is the macro level to do with creating conventions and structures that to 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 meet and to to challenge and to create obstacles to to one's compulsions we might also say that uh, skillful friendship helps you to be seen other than you see yourself and that also helps um, so these are the kind of lifestyle changes that we we make or we we look towards 
developing parami resolutions that uh, engender strengths and and richness in our in our hearts that help to just you know take us out of these rather depleted and unfulfilled uh, phenomena that we would tend to constellate around and then uh, uh, diffusing that is taking these energies in and and draining them draining the uh, agitated state into the relaxed state uh, draining the uh, frightened state into the refuge state um, cultivating these, but you have to cultivate these supportive modes, which then act as qualities that can catch these energies and just diffuse them, dissolve them. And then the process of, of analysis and insight into what actually is going, what is this Sankara structured around? What, what it, it's, it itself is not a single thing, it's built up. It's built up of triggers triggers and energies and assumptions if it was a real thing let it be but it's not a real thing it's a fallacy so what where where's the trick where's the decoy where's the where's the lure where's the ruse where's the conjuring trick that makes us buy into this what's the trigger what does it say it will grant us how true is that what is that what does it say it'll protect us from how true is that when it says it will give us security, how true is that? <laughs> when it says it will get us to the answer, how true is that? Yeah. So we're meeting this all the time. Compulsive thinking. Yeah. Which may not be that pro- problematic. But it's still, it's got a, it's, it's a message is, you think this through and you'll get to the answer and that will be the end. You never get to the answer with thinking. This goes to another thought. It pauses and then, oh, that's great. Now, then to the next thing. And we get into, you know, searching for certainty in thought. And all it takes us into is another opinion. (laughs) Which we have to hold on to and get dogmatic about. So, you know, so when you're meditating, clearly this, this whole process of compulsive thought is a very standard problem or standard feature of our practice. And what it takes is just, particularly the ones that are saying, well, just think this through, just sort this out first of all, then I'll get back. I just need to think this through, and you know, I've got this great idea, I just need to think about this, you know, just keep... You know, you've got to loosen, relax, and and blow the whistle on, on the lure, on the on the on the um, what it, the way it, the way it, way we buy into it. Mm. You know, you can have your mind doing all kinds of tribunals on yourself or on other people. Right? She did this. He did that. I never do this. I'm not none of these. What are you doing? <laughs> is this really going to you know, solve anything one just hardens into these you know ag- aggrieved states that don't resolve anything you just you engrave the sankharas and so this is really frightening to see how you know the sankara is not just that we acquire something that deliberately wants to acquire some more 
And that's, that's the way it is. Unless there's a realization, even momentarily, or a, a, a deep inclination towards the unconditioned, you know, a sankata. Or at least, you know, less toxically conditioned to more happy conditioned, like metta, or something like that. So then these become, you know, uh, just a a wise, pragmatic, really, you've got to keep placing that there, because the compulsive sankharas are so convincing and tricky and so much myself. But they're not myself. They're only an aspect of citta, the confused aspect of citta, the compulsive. They're the scribbling on the page, but they're not the page. Doesn't matter how much you scribble on it, it's still not the page. Contemplate these things with some dispassion, some detachment. This is really all these angles of practice, and I think anyway, anytime, anywhere you go for teachings, they may not be talking this language, but basically, this is the like main street, main theme. (laughs) In one way or another, is to dislodge this. um, This is what binds us. These compulsive. Sankaras. So someone asked about signs, nimittas. Spoke of signs as Brahmaviharas, but there are other signs too, such as peacefulness, stillness, or a sense of good enough, nothing more is needed. Are, there, are those also signs to linger in? And someone asked about incorporating reflection on the 32 parts into my practice. I find it somewhat uncomfortable since the body as a whole is also beautiful, a beautiful organism in the way it works. It seems like the coolness of dispassion and the warmth of appreciation and the warmth of appreciation would be good to cultivate while delving into this reflection. Um, no, not really. Um, these third two parts is is a is a way of, um, I mean, again, one could take it on, on various levels. Um, it's it's all the part when you take a if you take a physical body apart and you know lay bits out, hair, teeth, guts, uh, fluids, so forth. It it loses its sense of being a person, really, um, and certainly. Uh, not not something that would attract one, attract you. In fact, it might even do the opposite, repel. And yet, we recognise that physical bodies are made of hair, teeth, uh, flesh, fat, bones, fluids, and so forth. So, oh, that's interesting. So that, that's a that's a raw fact of it. And this is um, to compensate the way in which the, the mind can create a, 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 a greed nimiter or an attraction nimiter out of a physical body. So it establishes the nimiter of, of sexual passion or, or vanity, you know, I look so good. 
Um, so establish this 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 nimitta then sits on a physical form to make it something. So the aim is not really to dis- damage the body, but to dispel the nimitta, the unconscious nimitta, or the non something we're not really aware of how this quality uh, of passion or fascination or ident- get or even identification gets established on this materiality. You know, so so some teachers teach this a lot. Uh, both to cultivate, to cool sexual desire and to create dispassion towards one's own physical form. Just, uh, and then, then the result is the mind, that, that quality of warming doesn't occur. The heating up or the arousal doesn't occur if it's, if it's cultivated skillfully. So there's a sort of cool, empty quality. And that's one, so it directly does that. Also, like any nimitta, what it, what it does is it gives the mind something quite distinct to stabilize around. So it's a certain samadhi function. It stabilizes the jitta because it's just got that. So if you do it a lot, then you, you can almost conjure up this image, a skeleton or something like that, or and you can conjure it up and hold it in your mind and, and the mind just holds that because it's a fairly... It's not subtle. So you go to get the mood, but then the fact of holding, the mind holding a particular image rather than discursive thought gives it a certain stability. So the mind becomes very stabilized and cool. And then uh, it can be the case then the image path drops away. You don't need the image anymore. Instead, you stay in this state of a cool, dispassionate, steady state. And other images might might feel quite bright and luminous. But I know one forest teacher, this is his primary, almost his only meditation is this. And uh, um, has a very bright, luminous mind. You know, it's very gentle and serene and, and you know, not, not someone's emanating disgust. Or anything, but <laughs> because the mind is held steady and therefore, when anyway, it's held steady, and particularly there, you're removing it from the fascination with the sensory realm. Then, you, then it comes to the immaterial realm, and just feels bright and radiant. That's an example of a nimitta. Using a nimitta, so generally, what for meditation, what this term and the, and the skills around it entail is you you pick something up that can acquire an energy a strength of its own so if you have a metta quality then this is a lovely idea and there's even a certain emotion that goes with that but then you also notice the energy the certain radiance that comes up with it and if you do it again and again and again so it becomes steady and you might have a particular object that helps one to to generate that. Something one admires or respects or feels warm towards. And then so you use that and then the mind, oh, I can go to that. I can bring it up time and time again. I can bring it up. I can bring it up. There it is. Uh, 
and then perhaps more subtly you can begin to not so much have need the image, just the very state. That, oh, I know what the mind's like when it's in its meta state. There's a certain ease, a certain energy comes into the body, perhaps one feels more heart-centered, a certain luminosity occurs. So then that sign becomes a very, um, almost stands up by itself, and then you can let things move into it. So it says the cultivation of metta, you see the beautiful in the unbeautiful, and you're able to maintain loving kindness. You see the the um, repulsive, and you remain with loving kindness. You see the gut, you know, so you see things that would not necessarily evoke it. Your mind is, it remains unwavering. So we might, for example, have generated that and see something like some slimy creature that we would normally feel disgust around and just the mind doesn't move. It doesn't go into the disgust nimitta. It, it holds steady. So the example, I think, it, you know, in the narratives of the Buddha life, he had this, somebody, you know, got uh, intoxicated an elephant and loosed this elephant on the Buddha in order to kill him. So this drunken elephant comes charging along and, and people say, oh, no, no, the Buddha says, don't worry about it, I can handle this. And he just sends out his metta, nimitta, <laughs> and the elephant, you know, stops, goes down on its knees and puts bows at the Buddha's feet, something like that. <laughs> so it has a particular uh, energy to it. So that that's so, and similarly, anything that we we cultivate to that level is not just a mental, it's not just a thought or an idea or even a mental state, it acquires an energetic property to it. So you... Uh, so, for example, the sense of contentment is a skillful mind state. Whether that would come out as an opeka nimitta, an equanimity nimitta, whether you could actually sustain that as a palpable quality. If it could, that's fine. You know, uh, it should have something that that is, is, it's not just conceptual. It moves beyond that into something energetic uh, uh, that, that has the mind is transformed by it energetically transformed by it so someone's reflecting on samadhi and vipassana actually I said samatha and vipassana so samatha is the skill of holding something without clinging to it. Vipassana, stepping back without pushing it away. I think a difficulty I have in entering samadhi is that stepping back faculty won't disengage. That is, stepping back feels like a mano formation. Well, both of the samatha vipassana both depend upon mindfulness, which both they depend upon the ability to you know, bear something in mind without uh, uh, 
either gripping hold, gripping it or manipulating it. And this mindfulness depends upon a certain disengagement from the habitual reactions we would normally have to what we're focusing on. So, so it's a coolness to it. Disengagement or viveka is the uh, uh, support for mindfulness. Uh, it means that there's a sense of uh, uh, change of speed, a change of reaction, uh, uh, pausing. Uh, that means that we that we can a spaciousness, a sense of being with something rather than in it. Mm. It's a mode of attention, or it sustains a mode of attention which is not engaged and yet not separated. So when attention is engaged with something, it goes into the details and gets interested and tends to uh, you know, get activated by what engages with. We look at something, oh, that's nice, look at the patterns of that. Oh, make it like you know, if we don't engage, there's that. There's that which is seems attractive. Uh-huh. Notice that. Seems beautiful. Notice that. Uh, we're aware of that sign. And that, that quality of attractiveness is then allowed to rise and move, change, you know, we just stay steady. So the sati when it's established allows these various mental, um, emotional or psychological um dispositions to, to pass, arise and pass while one maintains a steady focus. We don't go into the details, uh, nor, do, uh, nor do we shift. So it, it, it checks the restlessness and the fidgetiness of the mind. That bound to produce a certain calming effect. The, um, so the calming effect, I would say, is the preliminary, what has to happen first, and the insight effect is that having that quality, the calm is there, then with that sense of, you're still in a disengaged perspective, and now you just, what is that made of? Because now the, the steadiness is strong enough that I can actually go into the details to examine them what how they work you know like how does so if i see something that looks attractive to me then i don't focus on it i don't how does attraction work because that does that we analyze how experience is compounded into emotional uh, pleasure pain mental pleasure pain uh, drives instincts you see how does a visual object, which is just that. So if I'm practicing insight, I'm noticing that visual object, which looks beautiful. Where does the moment of beauty arise? Where does the moment, where does the instinct to hold on to it come from? What's happening when that happens? So we analyze the nature of, of the experience, not the object but the experiencing of the object. You see what I mean? So we're not, it's not a superficial analysis of the object, but it's an it's a in-depth analysis of the experience of the object.
So we begin to deconstruct the way the mind works and we can do this around relatively simple things because the mind is operating in in standard ways uh, around a multitude of objects. Basically it's uh, pleasure, pain, um, desire, aversion, uh, pretty simple phenomena. But if we just go to the superficial attention, we don't penetrate into the roots of the mental behavior and that's what we're trying to deconstruct. So once you've begun to destruct, deconstruct the pull towards one's eye or tongue experiences as pleasant, what's that based on? And deconstruct it, then you, you know you can even in a fairly simple you know, with one object you can deconstruct psychologies that, that affect many different areas of your life gratification experience the defense experience the um, um, you know uh, critical aversion experience what triggers aversion in me so i've noticed that around this person's behavior i've noticed that around my own behavior i noticed that around the way the room is set up i noticed that around the way the chanting is i noticed well it's a lot of it around we just take one of them and there's the thing and there's what it's doing there's this kind of tightening or prickling or crinkling going on and and so we begin to look into this these this aversive behavior what's it trying to do what's it trying to do generally trying to take me away from the unpleasant does it work? No, because it is unpleasant. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's so unpleasant about the unpleasant? <laughs> what is that based upon? Could I make the unpleasant just that, you know, a phenomenon in its own right, rather than my impression of it? You know? So we're liberating phenomena from our subjective take on it that's the nature of vipassana and the beauty of it is that the more that's cultivated in these sometimes you know very kind of rather embarrassing ways uh, you know where we have to recognize the potential for ill will or greed uh, or and so on and then you start to deconstruct that what you're deconstructing is the subjective take on experience Right now, if you're deconstructing the subjective take on experience, what happens to the sense of self? <laughs> right, because the subjective take on experience is an attribute of the sense of self, isn't it? So, if we, within that, if we recognise that it was a big, big thing to 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 could be realised here, um, I could begin to free up being this person. It has never pleased me at all. <laughs> that would be a gift, wouldn't it? If I could, you know, get out of being this person. And then, uh, you, then so you start to, rather than work on the, think you are the problem. No, you're not the problem. This sankara is the problem. How does it work? When that f- releases you? Oh, feel different. 
So this this sense of disengagement is the pivot around which uh, habits can change, around which we can flex, we can, you know, feel some stillness because we're not fiddling and rushing in or and we can also cultivate we've got the space whereby we know now we're flexible and we could begin to then look into experience in a flexible way so someone asked if soothing the chitta seems like most of practice can you talk about the other 20 percent well i think i i just did so the samatha is the is the soothing, and then the vipassana when when the jitta is uh, comfortable, strong enough, so it's not just you know bowed down by the weight of these uh, afflictive experiences. Then it's fit. It's called fit, ready for work, pliable, malleable, light, agile. These are the these are the words that are used. Then it's capable of turning, flexing, investigating, going against its old habits. And this is the process of um, liberation, insight. I don't know if we have time for some more. We'll take a few, one or two. Mm-hmm. These are a little bit more language issues. What is, I don't understand mano. Is that a subset of jitta sankara or another type of sankara? Mano is a word used um, for a particular kind of consciousness. So consciousness, we have an eye, eye organ, and then the eye organ has something called visual consciousness. And that visual consciousness and the eye organ uh, bring visual objects to into awareness and the jitter is then able to to then perceptions arise around that and feeling gets felt so all the sense organs do that and we have another one called mano which is the mind uh, organ of course you can't see a physical lump of flesh with that uh, but it operates in the same way so Mano then Mano brings conceivables into awareness. It brings conceivables, concepts, ideas, brings them into awareness. That's that's what Mano Vijnana is, and Mano is just the simplification of that of that that word. Mm. Um, now what it doesn't have, it doesn't have an ethical sense. It just does its job, which is its job is to bring con- the conceivables into awareness. It does no ethical sense, it just brings conceivables <laughs> into experience. Good ones, bad ones, disgusting ones, wonderful ones. It just does that, that's its job, just like the eye. The eye can see all kinds of horrible things, beautiful things. The mano does that. The ethical sense... This is so, and the feeling sense is is the word chitta is used for that. Now, you know, as that which is able to shiver and tremble, feel shame, and feel urges, feel impulses. Uh, it can be obsessed with greed. It can be loving. It can be patient. It can be have a sense of conscience. This is chitta, and it can incline, 
And it can then direct consciousness. It can say, look that way, think this thing, uh, give me an answer to this, uh, what's that taste like? It can put things around. So the jitter is a more dynamic uh, quality. So how these line up, some people would say jitter is the kind of energetic feeling aspect of the of the of manovinyana or some people other people would say well no, no manovinyana is a kind of something that jitter establishes based upon uh, previous lives because the vinyana doesn't tr- transfer to another life but jitter does uh, of course, this is, gets problematic because uh, once you use a word like jitter, we assume it's a thing. And that isn't quite correct. It's more like an energy or an intelligence, uh, a signal or a set of signals or sensitivities. And so that this then, uh, when jitter arises in the sensory form, then it cultivates or it comes out, it activates these consciousnesses. Right. Okay. Do all sense objects have rupas? Well, very in the broadest sense of the, the word, yes. Yeah, so uh, we have a, a, no, an ob- a nose object is called a smell. Nama rupa, and some aspects of nama, do these always determine how rupas appear, i.e. all rupas always have namas. <laughs> so in other words, all form always has a uh, um, perception, uh, feeling, uh, uh, rises with in- intentionality, uh, some kind of activation, contact impressions arise around it. Um, by and large, yes. There's the only instance of, uh, of that, of it not being that case, is um, Nibbana, whereby the Nama ceases and so therefore rupa is not detected or designated the simplest way of of, um, apprehending this is contact impression when it's no longer agitated when intentionality is no longer directing towards something uh, trying to when attention is no longer fixated upon an object it doesn't manifest. This is rather esoteric and perhaps seemingly beyond the scope of one's practice, but um, there's something to say about that. And mostly, I think, in sort of daily life sense or what we can perhaps most access ourselves. It's just notice the things that aren't here. <laughs> so the mind is not. And when the Buddha talked about this, uh, he talked about it as emptying, whereby you pick up, it's a way of simplifying experience. You pick up what is directly here. And what's not that, you you notice it's not here. It starts out very simply, like you 
you go to a forest and you notice the trees, you notice the woods, you notice the, uh, and you notice there's no, there's no cars here. So you go to that place where, oh, it's quiet, no car. So, and then the quality of the forest you take in more fully. And you notice the, but you notice the presence of one thing and the absence of the opposite. And they're both equally important. Hmm? Notice the non-car. You think, well, I can do that. Okay. <laughs> but often we don't. And then even more subtly you begin to see, well, all these trees, you could sum it all up as earth element. Earth element. Notice what isn't here. Uh, fire. Or the, the mind acquires that sign, steadies on it, simplifies. So you begin to deconstruct. Because most people's minds work in terms of virtual realities. Whereby we retain traces of things that aren't here. You know, we're kind of still, mind is still on some level operating in terms of things that aren't here. We've learned to do that because our life is mostly spent in virtual realities of tomorrow and yesterday. And uh, uh, yeah. in fact, almost all of it is virtual reality. including oneself. <laughs> so notice what directly is. Pick up something, like his body. Is that right? Just this. Just this. How do you know you have a body? Just that. Meat, earth, F- uh, firmness, a feeling, not particularly pleasant, just pick up the earthiness of it, the, the firmness of it, and notice the absence of tomorrow, my job, yesterday, my cousin, that's not here, doesn't it? You know, in this, it isn't here. Pick up the sign, and you begin to deconstruct this multidimensional virtual reality that hovers around like like spider's webs around our chitta and all those virtual realities contain qualities that have a have a real effect they contain anxiety qualities they contain desire qualities they contain if only i should could be qualities they contain regret qualities they re- con- you know they contain all these um, energies that then drip into your experience. So the mind is saturated with stuff that actually isn't here. It doesn't, you know, so, but right here, what is directly palpable that you can, mind can rest on and use as a solid support, make much of that, empty the other. Release it. Do you need it? What would it be like to be without that? Start 
working on that? What would it be like to be without that? Why do you have to hold on to that? Then hmm? work with it that makes you hold on to that. You feel regret, you feel need, you feel you should. Start to look into those messages. How valid, how true, what needs to be done to compensate for those messages, to relax those messages. When will you ever let yourself free? Hmm? When will you ever say you don't have to be bound? When will you ever grant yourself permission for a moment of freedom? Like just five minutes maybe. You know, trap bondage is always available. You don't have to. It's on constant supply. <laughs> no shortage. So just, just you get a flavour, taste of it. See, it's not that remote, really. And though even this body is not, not great fun, all the time. <laughs> but if you focus on the earthiness of it. The mind acquires steadiness, and look the misery I create in the virtual realities that don't have to pick that up, and that that itself is just having that option. Uh, you can do that, and and then what what do you really need to pick up, and how do you pick it up? Is it just compulsion or saying this has to be clearly dealt with? Okay. But then it's not just this tangle of old karma that you just slide into time and time again. This emptying is a, is a skill to be cultivated. So that's enough for this evening. I hope that's okay for you and not too much. <laughs>